0: So my guest today, Clarence Greenwood, also known as Citizen Cope on the music circuit, grew up actually in the really early days in Memphis and then split most of his time between Washington, D.C. in the sort of late 80s, 90s and a small town in West Texas where He got exposed to all sorts of different types of music, the go-go scene in DC, the country scene in West Texas, and then sort of the whole amalgam. And that set him into a whole bunch of exploration of what it would be like for him to actually live his life in the world of music. It started by simply writing poetry and slowly blossomed into creativity and writing and singing and then recording. He ended up getting signed pretty early on. And then some of the sort of elder guard in the music world started to take notice of him. People like Carlos Santana, who first recorded Cope's song, Sideways, and then he decided at some point that it was time for him to step into his own place of control, start his own label, and build his own career. As we sat down to record this conversation, um, he was literally about to kick off a new tour for his new album, Heroin and Helicopters. And that is kind of a funny story um, that involves Carlos and Hannah behind the name of that album. And the tour goes on for a number of months. And uh, one of his first stops was actually just a couple blocks from our studio, at the Beacon in New York City. We dive into his journey, his life, his influences the moments and experiences that really shaped and formed him. We explore how things have changed, how his lens on music and life has changed since he's become a dad, and so much more. Super excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project.
1: Cool fact.
3: I was born in Memphis, Tennessee and and moved to Greenville, Mississippi. And my father's side of the family was in a small town in Texas called Vernon. So I was kind of exposed to different, different lifestyles, different communities, different cultures throughout my life. But when I moved to New York, I felt like it was the first time I felt like I was home.
0: Mm. Nah, So you would have. You would have been in D.C. then, so this would be like uh, mid-'80s, late-'80s, ni- early-'90s. Yeah. Man, D.C. is a very different place now. I mean, that was when it was, you know, like from the outside world, it's like, um, well, the moniker was it was the murder capital of uh, of the country. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
3: D.C. was, had an era of danger, and also it, it there was just not that much going on, and, but at the same time, it was a good place for me to kind of sit and write, you know, not, if I moved to New York earlier, I think I would have been caught up in all the excitement. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely a, an interesting to, place to grow up because when I moved out of it, I felt like I'd been walking in quicksand and I felt like, oh, wow, you know, this is this is great. You know, you can actually move around a little bit better. And um, I, I, I do, you know, musical influences in D.C. and and I'm very grateful for the time I spent there and the solitude I had there, where I could develop my songwriting craft. Yes, yeah. it was able to do that. But I've found every city in the country has gone through a pretty massive transformation. Obviously, D.C. and New York and the big cities, but everywhere you go, people say the same thing. And if you're in an Uber, they're like, oh, man, you should have seen it five years ago or 10 years ago. And then you kind of ask personally how they're doing. And, you know, they're like, well, I can't afford to live here anymore. Yeah. And so, so I kind of wonder what the economic, you know, ramifications are or the realities of all the development is. Uh, but I guess we'll find that out.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of people are getting pushed out. There's gentrification going on in every major city and then now smaller and smaller cities and now big towns. And it's sort of like you said, it's happening all over the place. Yeah. I but where wonder. do people go? <laughs> you know, it's like.
3: I think there's just been a, you know, from the small cities and the rural communities, people were, were wanting to go where there was more access to stuff, especially when a lot of the cities were economically hit or the small towns. And. You know, there's always been that migration to the big city in every culture and in every country, I think, where, in and even other countries coming to America, where people that want something more in their life, they move. Mm. Yeah. But I think maybe it's going to go back. People are going to start going to these small towns
0: that were built really well and they can go live there cheaply. Right.
3: Like the, the, and <laughs> do all their work on the The internet.
0: dream starts to become you know, like moving to the small town. Mm-hmm. Moving out of the madness. yeah. Um, but I mean, as so I came up right out, outside New York City, actually, and we're about the same age. Um, it's interesting because I think there were actually a lot of parallels between New York and D.C., especially back then. I mean, there was a huge drug problem in New York, this huge drug problem in D.C., but also there was a, a crazy rich music scene here. And I mean, D.C., I mean, that would have been it's like DC Punk. That's like, like DC Go-Go. I mean, that yeah. that was a time when that stuff was really in its prime, wasn't
3: it? Yeah, Go-Go and, and punk rock. And out of the punk rock community, there was a lot of independent indie kind of rock bands. And, you know, on the same side of the Go-Go thing, there was some R&B stuff. They haven't hadn't really started to do the hip hop thing yet because Go-Go was king in, in DC, okay. but now- there's some some artists in DC that are that are some rappers that have done pretty well. Yeah,
0: and like, I mean was Google a thing really outside of DC, or it was pretty I much mean, it a DC thing, I think wasn't DC
3: it? people brought it everywhere, and then right. the people were questioning it. But I went to school in Texas, and one thing about Texas was that they got the East Coast stuff and the West Coast stuff. Yeah. And the guys there love music so much that they they had actually heard of Chuck Brown and Trouble Funk. And I think it did, was able to get to certain communities and understood in certain communities, but sometimes they didn't understand it until they got to hear it. But I think a lot of DC guys that left DC always brought their Go-Go records.
0: Yeah. I mean, for those who, which is probably going to be most people who don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about Go-Go, I've I've heard it described a lot of different ways like how would you sort of explain what it actually was or or still is I think it's just the sound of
3: dc yeah I think it's it's the energy of dc that you can't really you know go go show shows 2 3 hours long and they don't stop in between songs they go and blend songs from one to the next a lot of rhythm a lot of cross rhythm uh percussions Kungas, timbales, great drummers, great musicians. Sometimes they'll do cover songs. Sometimes they'll do their own anthems. But it kind of had, you know, just a a, a counterculture to it, right. um, a, a, a point of view. Chuck Brown, who was the Godfather, and, and you know, was just an ambassador to peace and love as well, and. Very inclusive person, but it was kinda of the sound of inner city D C and the surrounding areas that 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 took it on and, and accepted it and loved it and people just stay in D C do three or four shows a week and yeah. it's it's still cranking,
0: as yeah. Say. I mean and it also it's 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 really it wasn't like, you know, you're just performing to the crowd. This was a conversation. This was like call and response. This is like people were in it
3: the whole yeah, time. Yeah, and, and you know, people would be called out, shouted out, yeah. and the local drug dealers <laughs> would be called out uncertain. And then there was this guy that would walk around with all the different tapes of the different night with the different bands. Yeah. There was all these bootleg tapes going out. So there was a culture of people collecting rare go-go tapes, live go-go tapes from certain clubs. And that was a thriving industry as well. Yeah. Cause it was kind of a live form. I mean, it was caught on on record a few times pretty well, but it was really a live entity and still is.
0: Yeah. Do you have any of those old tapes?
3: I have a couple of them. I have a, of an amazing uh Chuck Brown, a couple of Chuck Brown ones and some Rare Essence stuff and some Backyard stuff. Actually, a couple of the guys from Backyard played on a couple of my records and the bass player from Rare Essence recorded and mixed some stuff for me and played on a couple of songs of Funky Ned and well, his name is Mike Neal. And um, I
0: recorded in a studio there. Yeah. Nice. Um I'd love to hear those tapes one day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be fun to just sort of like throw back and listen to that stuff. Were you because um, the punk scene was really really big in DC? Were you into that at all, or were you sort of like more on the?
3: I was more on like the go-go side? stuff, yeah. and and you know when hip hop came, it changed. Um, I had a lot of friends that were really into the punk rock stuff, and in my high school, I went to Wilson High School, where a couple of the guys from Bugazzi went. And Ian McKay started there. I mean, they were older than me, but the guys that were into the, to the punk rock scene that were my age had, had learned from them and went on to do their thing. So there was, there was a couple classmates of mine that were in this band called Girls Against Boys. It became that, and before that, it was a band called uh, Lunch Meet or Soul Side.
0: Gotta yeah, love all the news. And yeah, ads, they, especially they back then. The kind of come
3: through, and and uh, Bobby Sullivan and and Johnny Temple and uh, Eli Janney and these guys, yeah, uh, were heavily influenced by that
0: side of it and they they took off in that direction. So, what what is it that brings you into the music scene? Like, a, like, were you did you start really young or was it high school ish or
3: you no, know, we had. We had instruments in elementary
0: school, and
3: I think that was one of the big things. I got really into it as a listener, just listening to records and and vinyl and, and of all aspects and friends, and we started messing around playing the guitar. I never thought I would be a guitar player because I couldn't really learn other people's songs. Hmm. And then I started writing poetry. I kind of got into it late in my teens, started writing poetry, and I was feeling, wow, this is... How did this happen? It just kind of came. And um, I was really into when the hip-hop thing came in, learning these drum machines. So I bought a drum machine and, and a four-track and started yeah. getting...
0: Get old, the old Roland's. So. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. started kind of
3: getting into that. And then I got a sampler and learned sampling and kind of started to understood understand the mystery of what it was that was a song a verse and a chorus and a and a bar and all these kind of things that i had no idea about i just i was just mystified by how music could be made and and that kind of helped me with by sampling understanding what a song really was so i kind of got into it from that point and then picked my guitar back up and started writing songs because I had all this stuff and I was like, well, I can't even sing a song for my grandma. <laughs> and then I I, I kind of went back and used what I'd learned with the drum machine and, and, and kind of wanted something really cool to sound, pay respect to the music I loved rhythmically and also as a songwriter.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too because while... You've got this going on in DC, um, like you shared. You're you're spending the summers out in West Texas, yeah, getting exposed to just a complete. I mean, not only a completely different culture, but a completely different world of sort of music and musical influences too. Yeah, I
3: mean, you would hear the obviously the country stuff, and not just the old school Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings stuff, but also what was current in that that time. You know, the Alabama's or the you know these, these Oak Ridge boys, or yeah. you know Rita McIntyre, and so you, that had its its own thing. But it's funny, you know, some of the guys was listening to LL Cool J too. So it yeah. it, it it culturally it was an interesting place because Vernon was one of these towns where I say it didn't it wasn't a very kind place, and and I always say like accidents would happen there. You know, you would things you would hear about in, in life, you know, somebody drowning or getting hit by a bolt of lightning or it seemed like to happen there, you know, and, you know, a, it was like the unfortunate town. <laughs> it was, it was just, it was just really, even though it was a small town, things tended to happen there and, the, and were kind of unbelievable. And, and it was, it was, culturally a lot of different religions and a lot of different churches and the reality of racism was very prevalent but then then again it was a southern town and a small town so people were actually interacting whereas like DC was more segregated so you know as I got older I realized that racism and all that kind of stuff existed everywhere in America. And it wasn't just the South or in those places, but there it was
0: it was very upfront and in your face. Yeah, I mean, you seem like somebody, you don't hear about many people who start writing poetry at a pretty young age, um, especially Americans and especially men. Right. <laughs> so um, were you were you a kid? I mean, even at a young age, were you someone who was sort of um, observing and deeper and more sensitive to the world around you to a certain extent?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think because I had these different, completely different lives. lives. I mean, my, my mother and father divorced when I was very young. My father stayed in this small town and my mother moved to Washington, D.C. And I mean, from there, we were in... Greenville, Mississippi, and kind of in the middle of nowhere, a small house on a farm and to move to kind of a an area in DC where people were very intellectual and, you know, my stepfather was went there to be a public defender and um he wasn't my stepfather yet, but they got eventually got married, but they moved together. And my father disappeared when I was really young. So I ended up always going back and staying with my great aunt and uncle who raised my father in in Vernon, which I I loved West Texas. My aunt was an incredible cook. We used to, she used to fry about three or four times a week. And and I just wonder why (laughs) I can't eat fried food anymore all the time. But, um, you know, she just cooked from scratch and, but they were very country. My, uh, my uncle had lost his arm in a uh, cotton gin accident and, but still went to the farm and raised cattle and fixed fence posts and that kind of thing was very, was a very calm and still individual. Didn't talk a lot, didn't have a lot of hatred in him or he wouldn't express it really. Um, I saw that a lot down there, but they were a lot older. They didn't have children, so they tended to kind of dote upon my sister and I. And we drank Coca Cola's every day, and <laughs> they would cook for us, and we'd go to the pool, swimming pool, and then go to, I'd go to the farm with my uncle every, every day,
0: you know, every day he went. Yeah. So when you start writing, what is it that you feel like you have to get out? Like what What was well, the drive Well, start, it
3: started that? with that. Well, my uncle passed away when I was 19 uh-huh. or 18. When And that was a real moment of kind of everything in my life that I kind of not understood came front and center. And I had this really cathartic moment when I was viewing him in the funeral home where I just, just cried for, you know, hours and i couldn't be moved and it was all this emotion of stuff that in my life that i didn't understand i was basically i'd been estranged from my father for years and i hadn't seen him at that point and um, my mother was so mad that i didn't go to college that we were estranged and then my uncle dies and he's like my hero and i had this cathartic like I'm crying and then I go back and I start writing these poems and 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 I just couldn't stop and, and it was like wow this is really good I wasn't really ever good that good at anything up until that point um I was a decent writer I was probably a pretty good writer but uh, you know I I really loved playing sports just within you know on the street playing basketball or whatever playing football I didn't hit my growth spurt till I was like 16 so my first dreams of being a football player were kind of squashed (laughs) plus I was probably one of the slower people in the history of the world and so that wasn't going to work and so this kind of came pretty it just wrote itself and, and it was really good and I was listening to stuff, and and you know my my junior year, I started buying and selling tickets to concert and sporting events, so I was scalping tickets, and I started making money. And um, I, I was always into you know doing out everything when you were a kid to make money and raking leaves and cutting lawns and all those kind of basic things. But then I started kind of making grown up money and, and as a teenager and that was something that kind of allowed me to start getting musical equipment and then listening to records. And I didn't think I could do it for a living, but I was just interested in it. It was like, wow, this is really cool. You know, drum machine is cool. Yeah. You know, I'd Plug in a headphone and just try to make a drum beat. And, and it was just something that
0: happened one slow step at a time. And, and, and that's... Yeah, so it's not, I mean, it's interesting because it's not... It's not like you woke up and you're like, Oh, you're like this is my future. I'm gonna be a musician. I'm gonna go to school. I'm gonna study with people. And it was just like bit by bit, and you're like, Oh, I can like here's some poetry. This is this is actually something I feel good about. It's like something I that's good. Yeah. And then a love of music and then the ability to go out and actually purchase the stuff that lets you just completely immerse yourself in it and yeah. just it sounds like just really a huge amount of it was both teaching yourself, but then exposing yourself to all sorts of other types of music.
3: Yeah. Stuff. I mean, was like yeah, there all was a, yeah, there was a lot. And then I had friends that were in bands and stuff and they would say, Hey, have you heard this? And a friend who turned me on to the Willie Mitchell instrumental record. And he's the producer that produced Al Green stuff and people that turned me on to the meters. And these were guys that, you know, played music and instruments and stuff like that, that, you know, we're playing in bands and I moved to Austin, Texas and lived there for a couple of years. And I, I didn't think about it then, but I guess my perspective on life was probably, you know, it was I was meant to be some type of artist or some some type of writer because I had experienced kind of different things in American life. And also personally gone through things that I didn't necessarily feel were they were just regular to me, but they were actually probably pretty prevalent and helping me establish a point of view. So I go to D.C. and 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 people understood my life there, and then I go to Texas and people would understand my life there, but they they wouldn't be able to see when I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a completely different lifestyle, and it was a different. Um, experience and i was able to have you know both of those things and i guess it just contributed to it yeah
1: ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue nile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments
0: In one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. What happens that takes you from saying, okay, so I got pieces of the puzzle here. Um, I can write. Um, I can yeah you know, I'm learning all sorts of different instrumentation and how to record and how to use different electronic stuff and now I'm picking up the guitar again to then also saying, Okay, so can I sing? Maybe I can sing and then what would it be like for me to actually start to record like to actually make this potentially my thing
3: yeah, I was just i i I was more into it to write and produce, and then I was like, well who's gonna who's gonna <laughs> sing this and then I just started singing. And I I could keep always keep a tune, and when it was a point before my voice changed, that I really could sing. And then when my voice changed, I didn't think about it anymore much. And I was doing most of my lyrics more close to a spoken word or or kind of a rap without a good flow kind of thing. And then I started singing, and I went in the studio and started record. You know, I would just record like I get a studio and I hire an engineer and go and cut a song and I started doing that and doing my demos and then sending them out and a couple people from clubs asked me to open up and and that they liked the tape
0: and it's just one thing led to the other yeah were you surprised by that I mean or did you expect it or somewhere in the middle
3: I don't think I was comfortable with it at first I I still hadn't found my sound, I think when I found my sound, I was strumming the guitar and, you know, I felt the the goosebumps, and I wrote this song and the tears came down and I was, it was just something, something genuine about it. After years of kind of writing tons of lyrics and making tons of beats and all these other things, I got to this song, it was called Shotguns that I wrote. It was off the first record that never came out on Capitol Records. Very personal album, and and the song was pretty much about kind of like the suicide of our country at the time because of the cultural differences and building prisons. And, you know, in Vernon, it turned into a place where it had all these prisons. And and I was in school for a year at Texas Tech in Lubbock, and uh, I wrote this lyric. I said, stuck in fucking... Lubbock, Texas, and I can't even find me a college girl. And, um, you know, I was in college, so, I, you know, I was probably the first person ever to get laid in college, but that was that was me. And uh, and then I, I'm going to visit my cousin over in Vernon. That little bitty town is all that motherfucker loves. And, it, you know, and it goes in, and he's getting nervous because out his window, they're building another prison yard. It's got me thinking, in a town you can't drink in, just who are they building those prisons for? And then the chorus was like, well, accidents, they happen with shotguns sometimes. But this is suicide. Because, you know, in the South, there's a culture of suicide. And there's also a culture of guns. And there's a culture of people that kill people by accident. And so I kind of put all that together. And there I, I was just, just a moment I was like, wow, this is a fucking great song. <laughs> uh, and I just felt really good about it. And that's when I knew that I did you know, and I had a prayer. I said, I just prayed that I would do something authentic in music. And it wasn't about, hey, can I get a Grammy or can I get rich or can I get famous? But I just wanted to do something authentic. But I probably should have said, can I do something
0: authentic and win a Grammy? <laughs> right. It doesn't have to be an either or here. Give mm-hmm. me a yes and, yeah. But. Um, so you kind of threw out there that, um, that was for an album that, um, you were actually eventually signed for. I think Capitol was the...
3: Yeah, I signed to Capitol Records from right? a demo tape that was found by a scout at the time. who's my friend, Marshall Artwin, who's a producer and he's in Nashville now, but he was a scout at Capitol at the time. And that turned into a deal. And, um... I did the record, and they they didn't accept it, so they dropped me
0: from the label. What was the reason? Like, why didn't they want it?
3: You know, the the record was very... The demos that I did in D.C. actually were a little bit stronger than the album because I went and re-recorded the album in New York, and I didn't realize that some of the magic that I did on those demos probably should have just... I should have stuck with some of that and stayed there and, and done that. But looking back, I didn't make the best record. I had some great songs on there, but,
0: but it was heartbreaking. And yeah, I mean, especially because this is, it's the record where that song that you just explained was the one where it was the first time where the Tears came like the shakes came, like you're yeah. we like, This is what I'm here to do. Yeah, yep. and then to have that go into an album, and then to have the company say, mm, Not happening,
3: yeah, and it was all personal too. Yeah. So it was in it, it, and then I had to go and I had written all these songs, and now, now I mean, there's a re record restriction on my album, so I couldn't re record any of those songs, right. even if I got another deal. So I had to write a bunch of new songs. I got a loft on 9th Street, which was 2,500 square feet and kind of like a drug area at the time. Back lot, in DC. Yeah, a lot of prostitution. Um, I still had some money left over for my advance from capital. So it was like, I think it was like $800 a month. So it was, but it was great. I could sing out really loud. Wrote a bunch of new songs, um, Salvation. I wrote If There's Love. Was listening to Outcast records and uh, looked on the liner notes who recorded it, and I called that guy up and sent him some some music, and he's like, "Man, it sounds great! Come yeah. down here and i cut some demos."
0: I mean, so it's interesting because when that when you get that first thing from Capitol, they're like, "We're done." Um, for you, that wasn't. For something inside of you said okay it it's it's not that I don't have her like it's it, this isn't the end of my career like no this is just this is one no, but I'm still all in, yeah, I mean
3: you get the i mean it it is heartbreaking because you think you know you went from scalping tickets to now having a major record company deal out of d c which was very rare, and then I didn't want to stop there, but I knew that it was going to be challenging because I'd felt like I'd written some really, really good songs and I just didn't understand why they couldn't understand the songs. And then, then it got to, okay, well, you know, you're going to, you're either going to do it or not. And then I, I had to write, then some other songs came and it was just like amazing. And I started singing out a little bit more and, and as far as, having more space to do it in that, in that loft loft, I could learn the craft of actually singing a little bit better and went to Atlanta, cut some songs. And then when I cut, if there's love in Atlanta as a demo, I remember coming back and, and being like, it's, it's done. Like I'm, 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 I'm good now. I, I have this and I'm going to be able to get another deal. Yeah, so did you take that and then go back out to the market at that point? I took that and and I from different people I'd met, there was a, a guy that was at Warner Brothers that was they were thinking a sign of signing me when I was with Capitol but they didn't end up doing it and or after the Capitol thing and he lost his job and he start, he shopped the deal for me. And there, you know, if there's love and I had a couple other songs that were done. And, you know, like DreamWorks and Interscope and all of those came around and they wanted to do a deal. Nah.
0: So you end up um, signing on with uh, DreamWorks. I signed it, with DreamWorks, right? did a
3: record with them. Right. I signed with them because Lenny Walker, who did Randy Newman's records and a lot of the old Warner Brothers stuff, I just liked him as an executive and I was close to him. And... I probably should have signed with Jimmy Iovine, but I didn't. And he told me, you're making a giant mistake. <laughs> and uh, and I did not do that deal, but did the record with DreamWorks. And they didn't really have the marketing department there, but there was like really cool executive. You know, I, I could call up Lenny and say, hey, listen to this song. and say, hey, go go record it. And in fact, I did that when I recorded sideways, it wasn't on the record. I'd already finished my album and I played it for him over the phone, I, which I used to do. And he'd say, hey, go do that. And and I cut the song. So I felt really good about the creative side. They let me do what I, what I had to do creatively, but it was so, the record was so in between genres and it was like a California label and they kind of didn't understand the East Coast thing and they at the time just had a lot of money and it was more kind of okay let's meet to meet let's have another meeting to meet to meet he pushed it back and pushed it back and then the album didn't really do what it was supposed to do and at that point i i started getting involved i sent sideways out and carlos santana really liked it out of nowhere and he wanted to put it on his new record and that was on Arista Records and I went over to that company and and, and it was amazing cuz I, I I just I was like this is a real record company you know this is like real cool people that really sell records even on the pop stuff that wasn't what my cup of tea but they they had a history of actually really marketing and promoting music and also stuff that wasn't necessarily you know mainstream and turning it into mainstream they had that ability and and you know people you know they were i was being invited to parties for outcast parties and carlos santana things and it was and i was like this this seems better and they were like hey man if you if you want to leave dreamworks and i said absolutely let's cut this yeah and I, i called lenny and i said i'm real sorry but i gotta go and i you know you guys aren't gonna get this because I'd I'd already played them like "Sun's Gonna Rise" off the new record and "Sideways," and I didn't get the reaction that I thought that I was gonna get from them, and I, I I I took it to Arista and I had to pay DreamWorks off
0: personally, right? Basically, buy yourself out of the yeah the contract. So, did Santana release "Sideways" before you actually put it out? He did. But it was already done for
3: my record, but he his record was coming out before yeah, the yeah. Clarence Greenwood recording. So right, right. the version on my album doesn't have Carlos on it. The version on his album does, yeah. but it's the same version. Got it. And it's a different mix.
0: Cheryl Crow eventually recorded that also? Cheryl, else. Cheryl cut that, yeah. Right. Yeah. What's it like when you write a song and you get word back that Carlos santana wants to record it
3: man it felt so good because i was running around to all these radio stations with the dreamworks guy and bless his heart it was it was such a sweet guy uh this guy mark ratner and we were going everywhere but he he was also pushing all these other dreamwork bands at the same time calling like all these radio people and like Oh, we're going to get Jimmy Eat world We're you know, you know pop a roach, And I was like, all right. And then get this call and it's, it, Hey, Carlos really loves the song and his family really wo- loves the song and they want to put it. So it was kind of taking me into the major leagues after I was kind of in this, you know, buying pizza and, and steaks and lobster dinners for stations that were never, ever playing my record or never would. Um, Kind of thing to where, wow! I was, you know, Carlos had just come off the biggest record of of the year, and it, the follow up. Everyone was trying to get on it, so like, most of the songs on that record on Shaman were written by multiple people and produced by a different producer, and then fine tooth combed. And I'd written and produced this record and already recorded, and Carlos flew me out to to just be at his session when we put some percussions on it and his guitar. Mm.
0: What's it like when you're in the studio with him and you hear him play like your song for the first time?
3: It was kind of wild because I'd just done a video for If There's Love and my car to the airport came at like 6 o'clock and in the morning and I, we just rapped at like 4.30 and so I didn't sleep and then I, Carlos flew Economy through Chicago because you know, they didn't want to spend money on that kind of stuff. So you're like delirious by the time you. So alive. I got there and then you know got to this. We didn't. I didn't even go to the hotel. Went straight to the studio and then I really literally sat down and percussionist was up there. He's like, well, you know, what do you want me to play? And I just looked down I was like, Shh. and I think they thought I was like thought like oh. I don't know what you should play, but I was just more like, "Oh God, we're going right into it." Right, right. Then, um, Jim Gaines was there, the engineer and 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 longtime engineer with Carlos. He he just cut it a couple times. It took a couple takes. He had an idea of what he wanted to do, and I had a few few comments, but it literally was a couple hours. We're in the studio. I think he. He was going somewhere that night. There was really nothing to that that session.
0: Yeah, it just happened real fast. Yeah. So you're in a place then where you make the jump, you're kind of being courted by some big names and you're at a place where you feel like you can start to do more of you um, and be supported by people who will like be behind that. Yeah, I mean,
3: it was great You know, going to a record company and seeing all these pretty women and, and <laughs> It was like smart. They were smart and they liked my music. I just felt understood there. And I delivered the record and then the whole staff got fired and it was going to be a major push and it was under the Sony system and they just moved it over to RCA, which was Clive Davis was kind of running things and it just wasn't a company I would have signed with. It was kind of like very male dominated because I think you kind of have to have some understanding, you know, some women around to kind of understand what I was doing at the time. And it was kind of older white men running things that chased ambulances. And not in particular Clive, but the people under him at RCA at the time were kind of like, I was like, I went from a major down to kind of like a mid major again. Yeah, And it was, it wasn't a company that those people would even have signed me, but they knew I'd finished the Clarence Greenwood recordings and they knew the record was hot because it was already on the street and people were talking about it.
0: Yeah. So was that when you made the decision to peel off on your own? No, I had to do two records with right, RCA. So you're still under with so them. So I
3: did two yeah. records with them. It was not great. You know, so I yeah. I just said, hey, let me,
0: let me roll. Yeah. I mean, you hear that story so much in the industry, right? Is that people get locked into contracts and you don't have the final say on what, when you get out. <laughs>
3: gets... No, they, they lock you down for a long time yeah. in, in perpetuity and um, throughout the universe. It's not even throughout the world. So they, they, they obviously know some, yeah. something we don't.
0: But the world, that world is changing, man. Yeah. It's kind of exploding in a lot of different ways. I'm curious. I I want to actually ask you about that in a second. What just popped into my head is um, the tracks you wrote for that original album that was never released for Capitol. Have they ever seen The Light of Day?
3: No, I, I actually released one of the songs called Family on a disc, but I'm going to put that out probably in a couple of years.
0: Oh, Cool. Yeah. So you have like you got those free and clear at this point. I got those, yeah, I got but those it took back. time. <laughs> yeah, it took time. So then you do the you basically satisfy the rest of your obligation for them, and then you decide you know what, kind of done with the industry the way it is. I'm gonna do my own yeah, thing. Yeah,
3: I was. It was just kind of amateur hour over over there, and I'd given them two records. That I was like, yo, if you can't get sideways and bullet in a target. Sun's Gonna Rise off of one record. And that record eventually has four platinum singles and they never went to radio. Like they were just basically just letting me, you know, the record did what it did by the grace of God.
0: Which especially that one was
3: just... 2004, then, 2004, 2005, and then Every Wicked Moment was
0: 2006. Right. So back then that was unheard of. I mean, yeah. it's different now yeah. because, you know, like all the big digital platforms, Right. but back then, I mean, be able to do that completely independently without yeah. substantial radio airplay That's like, nobody does it. Yeah. Anymore. There was no
3: radio airplay. I mean, some non stations picked it up, but it wasn't even like on the lowest radio thing is like the AAA format in, didn't even chart on the AAA like bullet in the target and sun's gonna rise. And it just, they didn't, I later found out they didn't even go to these stations. So, yeah. I mean, it, we, luckily I had a really good person that was really behind it at RCA named Karen Lamberton who got me, helped get me a lot of licenses. So I got a lot of great licenses and the music was very visual. And there were some people in there fighting, but it was just, I mean, the top people just, we just didn't see, you know, the main guy was kind of more into like the super pop thing, which I, you know, was very good at. He, he it was Clive Davis. He, he was very good at that. And, um, but something left of center was not necessarily his thing. He had to be kind of really convinced, and it was hard. I spent a lot of time on the road built that made myself kind of label proof.
0: Yeah. And but I don't I don't want to skip over that though cuz I think that's such an important part of your story. Yeah. Is what you did is, you know, okay, so you don't have the labels, you know, a major label backing and the channels and the money and the resources and the people going out for you. But but what you do have is a belief in what you're doing. Yeah. A strong point of view. Yeah. And at that point a level of craft that People who are really good, yeah yeah, <laughs> recognize and musicians who are out there and they're rallying behind you, and then you turn around and you do the hard work of saying, "You know what I'm literally I am just gonna go, I'm gonna hit the road and i'm gonna I'm gonna play everywhere and anywhere I can, yeah for a long time and just do the work to just build as much you know, like to just go out there on the road and not stop until everyone knows about this.
3: Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much what I what you have to do as an artist is 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 kind of make yourself. If you're not gonna get those kind of things that everyone else gets, you gotta you gotta eat somehow. So you gotta gotta figure out how to get your stuff out there, and people have different ways of doing it. And I awful stage fright, so I never thought I would be. A performer, no so kidding. much performing. So do
0: it, you still have it to this day, or is it, yeah? I
3: mean, but it's not as bad as it used to be.
0: Yeah, it used to be debilitating. Well, um, what would you? I mean, before you would go on stage, what would you do to to be able to survive your time in front of? I wouldn't.
3: I would just dread it, you know, and then get out there and just feel not it not in place. And then I started drinking a lot, and and that helped. <laughs> and uh or at least I thought it helped yeah that I mean you see why people a lot of times musicians get into that you know into different substances I mean I've read about it a lot because like why the hell did I get dependent on drinking all the time and then smoking weed all day and and then there's some stuff in the Guardian about why That you're the kind of predisposed artist, or kind of the question of whether you're predisposed to be dependent on on substances, or does the job make you do it? So it was kind of an interesting article, but they 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 spoke on how the chemicals go when you're on stage, and then after there's like a drop, and then you know some people always want to want to want to keep lifting that up and whether it's like finding some pretty woman or drinking wine or you know
0: yeah somehow trying to figure out how do i keep that feeling going per, per, yeah how do you yeah how do you keep keep the highs going up yeah which eventually always ends in usually a pretty big low yeah, <laughs> yeah misery and despair <laughs> um, so you're out there on the road, you're building, you know, a, a pretty big audience that's getting behind you, both your, both your fans and then people in the industry as well. And then other musicians, uh, who are taking notice of you and, and you're starting to also tour and open for some people. Um, so like you're on stage and working with other people and, when you decide finally, right, um, I still got more to say, but I want complete control over my ability to actually record and distribute and stuff like that. Was that an easy call for you or? or? It, was, it, was, it wasn't easy. It was just,
3: it just made sense. I, I wanted the ownership of it because I would realize that these companies that I signed to, they weren't existed. They didn't exist anymore. This guy got fired or that guy got fired and then the other people, you know, Universal or Sony would own all this stuff that I did. And I wasn't able to use the assets like radio or press or any of these other things that were never kind of part of the package, even though I'd signed to the deal. I didn't even use the A&R department at RCA. That Like I fired the A&R guy like right when I got assigned him because he didn't, um, I remember one time, you know, he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't, he 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 wouldn't have signed me. He was so, and I, you know, he, like the only thing he did was try to tell me to change the the order of the songs and the Clarence Greenwood recordings, and then he stamped his name on the album. So he got fired, and um, he wasn't allowed in the studio. So there wasn't any really A and R people involved in in, in the record making process at RCA, and I didn't get radio. So that wasn't a part of it, and there wasn't really any press press going on.
0: So it's like you could do the same thing yourself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like I can deliver no results and not get in my way. Like yeah, to be yeah, and then I own else. it. Yeah. So but but you know there are
3: a lot of like positives, you know, at the time for me, for signing to a label. So it it, it worked out yeah you know, it wasn't like i don't regret any of that like i, I don't think i would have got to where i got unless i did that until i had to
0: until i have to you know did that i had to do it yeah well it's like a step in the journey you know yeah. um but you eventually end up opening your own label i guess probably going on nine ten years ago now
3: yeah yeah so this is the third album that i'm doing putting it out and
0: has it been what you thought it would be
3: yeah i mean it's it's but it's 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 still i mean music is still kind of in that music has changed so much where it's just like it's all or nothing so it's like super pop or you're kind of just all right you know and and so it's it's beautiful in that sense that that some people are getting being able to be seen a lot more than they would have been able to see yeah. Scene. So it's I mean, amazing. You got the
0: giant streaming platforms also yeah. completely changed the game in right. so many ways.
3: Yeah. And the labels own a piece of that. So they're kind of, they their people kind of still get the majority of the streaming.
0: Yeah. It, it's not as democratic as yeah. it seems.
3: So it doesn't, it, there's these ideas that, oh yeah, you can start your own label and you can just make your record in your house. and But the fact is that nobody's going to hear it either yeah. way because it takes a lot of money to break a record.
0: But also, I mean, a a hit on Spotify is recorded, written, recorded, and engineered differently than like an old school radio hit. I mean, like you have what, seven seconds on Spotify to grab somebody or something like that. So you had a little more breathing room, um, sort of like I, I think on traditional radio. It's sort of, I feel like, I almost feel like the mainstream industry is now channeling everybody into- writing for the digital platforms in a way where like, you've got to just instantly bang within the first seven to 10 seconds. And that's the way every song has to be written or else, you know, so there's no, like, I don't feel like there's enough room for the slow builds for something that's a little bit, you know, like, like you said, a little bit to the left, yeah. Um, which kind of takes like, you got to ease into it. But then once you're into it, it's like you're going, you're along for the ride. Yeah. I mean, people,
3: it's just a different, also people, Want different things from music now it's a different thing so it's not any worse or any better it's just it's just what it is and you can't change it so it's like there's no going back in time and then there's 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 really no doubting that some of the stuff that really is on those streaming services is really cool there's a lot of shit that sounds really good and um you know they've taken aspects of hip hop and they've taken aspects of pop, and they've kind of molded it all into one, into this big like, you know, music on steroid thing. And it's and it's worked. And then you yeah. listen, you listen back to classic records, and you they sound great too. So yeah. it's it's like you can't change time, and it's the energy right now. What's popping right now, musically, is the energy of the world. And that's like, that's really how, like I used to say, like rappers used to be drug dealers and now rappers are drug addicts. And it's, it's it's you know, and these young people have been thrown into, to kind of a, where they've been taken advantage of because they get a phone in their hand at a young age and then there's this bill and, you know, Verizon's even Charging some kid two hundred dollars. He didn't know he's tagging up his phone his parents phone bill and then it, it, People go to college and they owe owe two hundred thousand dollars. So it's it's really The dog eat dog thing is really really there even though we kind of lived in more You know now it's a more protected society so supposedly, but it's still You know still doggy dog, and I think a lot of these kids, you know, Doing music, that, you know, they might have been artists already at a young age and people were, oh, he's acting up in class, put him on Ritalin or put him on this, or whatever that drug is that they're putting him on. And then eventually they get dependent on on the stuff that's in their parents' closet. And, and so it's the energy of what's going on. And, and I think that's a real truth to what's popping right now it's not you know this it's not the deepest it's not the most thought out but there's a truth to it and an energy that exists
0: there's almost like it's like an anxious frenetic thing i think that's that's driving so much right now um and we
3: realize that you know life isn't fair (laughs) and it's not just and there isn't anything there is no justice um so therefore people are like, I got to get what I got to get. And that's, that's what it is.
0: Yeah. Um, and I think that reflects in the music to a certain extent also. You, um, you took off, I want to say probably seven years or so between your last album and the new one that's just dropping literally like as we're sitting down in the studio recording this. And in that window, you also became a dad. You yeah, know, Got a, a daughter now. As being a father, change your lens on, um, on the music that you write or your approach to, to. Yeah. I mean, you you know, there's certain things you can do as an artist
3: when you're not a father that you can't do as a father. So, or at least that I don't feel right doing as a father. Um, there's also, you know, it's amazing being around a child. So there's there's and just because of how I was raised I didn't have my father around me and being able to be there for her is like that's healing. That's like wow, I get to I get to re do this and be kinda around and and be there for her and spoil her and, you know. It was kind of wild because it I looked back at it and my sisters had to deal with the same thing and even my grandmother on my mother's side lost her father when she was um, in the womb so it was it was kind of like this this kind of ever-present thing it's was, it was like a very healing beautiful thing and and it was just more fun to kind of be in that mode. Then to then then always kind of thinking of because it hasn't been an easy battle you know musically so i was just like all right this is this is this is good let's go eat some chinese
0: food <laughs> um so the new album um heroin helicopters is a fun kind of a fun story about where the name comes from
3: yeah carlos told me to watch out for the two h's and uh, I didn't know what they were, and I he he saw me out at the Fillmore when he was trying to get sideways, and uh, uh, he's he he's like, "Watch out for heroin and helicopters. It's not good for musicians." And uh, so I I I thought it made so much sense about today with people's addictions to social media, with people's addictions to drugs, and let alone narcotic epidemic. And then also the helicopters, kind of the the need to kind of get somewhere faster and the decadence of helicopters and also the danger of helicopters and let alone the, you know, kind of taking shortcuts. It just seems like, it, wow, that made sense. And it makes sense now. So, And there's a story to it, so it's good because... It, I don't want to hear oh what's what's the name about and i
0: don't want to answer that question (laughs) um you're about to drop into uh a tour um for a couple months now when you think about it and 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 this is around a brand new album first album seven years pretty intense tour um a couple months um going from city city to city to city um when you do something like this and you know you're just going to be completely immersed, do you ever, do you think about what you want to happen during it or do you set an intention for it or what you want to either create for the people that are coming to it or get for yourself when you're sort of like just about to dive into it? I think what's what's crazy about live stuff is is, is it's
3: always been such a learning process to me. I, like I was saying earlier, I never felt like I got on stage and, this is what I meant I was supposed to do. It's just every, now it's just, I'm learning and feeling emotions and being able to include the crowd more and include people listening into my world. And, and, and there's a give and take and a receiving and releasing and all that other stuff that was always there but It was never fully recognized and I I, I just want to fully just open up and also spend my days enjoying different aspects of life and trying to fulfill myself, steep myself into philosophy and all that other stuff that is kind of like helping me develop as a human being and as a man and is a father and trying to not just be it means to an end to do a tour because I still want to live life outside of that bubble and hopefully come off the tour and know that kind of put certain things into practice that I've I've wanted to and 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 that's really what an artist does. Like I think an artist uses music as a vehicle to reach a certain spiritual awakening and that happens. And then you forget about it because all the, all the different little temptations come if you become like successful at all. So God will come in there and throw these temptations. And you see how you react. Oh yeah. You, you know, you're really good at turning down this and this and this, but what about this? And then, and, and, and so I, it's something you continuously need to, to, to practice. And it's, it's, it's like a, any kind of other thing, but it's, it's, it's just music is just a vehicle, hopefully to human development and growth. You know, that's, that's what I think it is. Mm, yeah. It can really fuck you up though. I mean, it's like, it can really, I don't, am I allowed to say that? Yeah. But yeah, it's, it it's one of those things that I think initially people, don't know that that's why they're getting into the arts but it just like when they say athletes or team sports isn't about the actual victory or 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 learning to be a great player it's about learning to be a great man or a great woman or like there's other things in life life lessons that you're supposed to learn within that sport and I think that There's life lessons you're supposed to learn, out here doing music and losing your autonomy and all these other things that happen along the way, and you know, part of your development is 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 dependent on it, or else you end up like a lot of people in this industry, which is, you know, addicted to drugs, broke, you know, or your your life is cut short you know it's not really the job I mean everyone says they want to be a musician but it's not really the job you have if you want a you know great family life and a, and a, and without without splitting up you do you want to be you know sober and clean and and you know you're going to have any artist is going to have their vices and that's why like some of the OGs like you know Clapton and and Carlos Santana and people that have made it through, like even a Lionel Richie or you know Dolly Parton, there's you know, they're just few and far between. You got to give them their sincere amount of admiration to people like that have actually done it, stayed
0: alive. Yeah. So um, it feels like a good place for us to come full circle too. So it's called Good Life Project. So if I offer up the phrase to live a good life what comes up. To live a good life It's a good meal.
3: Somebody to share it with that understands who you are, admires who you are, understands your faults, can help you with your deficiencies, can enhance the positive things in your life. Some joy, some laughter, some companionship, And hopefully you don't have to travel too far to find that, that you can find that within at some point. But if you get to travel to do it, then that's amazing too. And, you know, to give something to others and also be able to receive.
0: Mm. Thank you. So as we wrap things up, we sit here in our studio I know you don't have your guitar with you, but I happen to have two guitars hanging here on the wall. And uh, if you're down with maybe grabbing one of them and sharing something maybe from uh, your uh, newest album, that would be awesome. So I'm gonna uh, let you do your thing as you set up and then we're going to listen.